Hello, this is your host Narina and welcome to The Startup Way, a podcast where we unveil stories behind the scenes of startups, glorious success and drastic failure, spark thought-provoking conversations with investors and engage willing experts to reveal what the future of technology beholds. The podcast series are powered by SSS Venture Capital Firm, here to help you start, scale and succeed in the startup world. Hi, today I have the pleasure of hosting Marvin Liao, who is a partner at Diaspora VC. He was formal, formerly a partner at Venture Capital Fund 500 Startups, running the San Francisco-based Accelerator program. He invested in and worked with over 450 preceded stage startups. Uh, Marvin, thank you for joining the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. First things first. Tell us about your journey of getting into VC. How and why did you end up in the venture capital world? Oh, that's um, yeah, that's a good question. I I will admit I'm a very accidental VC. So for anyone who knows my background, I I did the startup thing for a couple of years. I was very early at a startup that raised a lot of money, like sixty three million before it imploded. Um, I also spent about ten and a half years at Yahoo. Um, you know, running a lot of the international expansions and expansion programs. Um, and so after that, I took two years off, you know, angel investing and doing the boards thing. And, um, you know, as I say, I, I'm a very accidental VC, because I thought the thing I'd do afterwards, you know, after taking some time off was to basically go back into operating, right? Like join a series A or series B company, be like COO or, or chief revenue officer or something. And um, I was mentoring at a lot of different startup accelerators. And um, like there are probably two dozen at that time, like all over Europe and, and you, you know, basically everywhere, you know, Asia, US, Israel. And um, one of them was 500 startups. So I spent like, you know, for almost a year and a half, I was spending almost like 10 and a half weeks, you know, at 500 stars, just like volunteer mentoring, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't a paid thing. It just, it was just fun. And so when they decided to open up the San Francisco office, they asked me to join as a partner. Um, and so that's kind of how I fell into it. And I had to really think about it because that wasn't sort of my, at least at that time, it wasn't sort of like on my, my ideas of what I wanted to do, but I was like, well, I know these people, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with them. This is super fun and might actually be fun to get paid for sort of like doing something I was going to be doing that I was pretty much doing for free for, for quite a while already anyways. And yeah, I, I fell in love with the, I fell in love with the industry. So now fast forward, it's been 10 and a half years. So I left 500 end of 2019 and, you know, did the angel investing um, on the side. And I also ended up uh, joining a bunch of investment committees at different VC funds, one focusing on Pakistan, one focusing on Saudi Arabia. But um, I, I joined and um, I became an operator again and uh, joined two friends of mine to basically run their their gaming holding company. Uh, so I did that for about two years and then um, was angel investing on the side and also joined uh, Diaspora, uh, which is a rolling fund. And so I think now it's like 10 and a half years later between the angel investing between 500 startups and between diaspora i'm at 465 investments i've done now over the last 10 and a half years so uh, and mainly in the pre-seed and seed side with some some select series a so yeah very accidental story but yeah like it's it, i love it now but now i'm kind of fell into it i'm kind of like forrest gump you worked with an impressive number of startups, and some of them are quite notable. What is the most rewarding thing about working with startups for you and helping them succeed? Um, you know what, I, what I've realized is, is sort of the best companies and the best founders need very little of your time, but I think sort of like being one of the first believers or early believers when there's, you know, when they have nothing, I, I think what, what is, is really, really 
great, for, at least what, what I find the most enjoyable is watching them just grow, right? Like grow mm -hmm. as people, grow as founders and, and you know, how they deal with like all the inevitable challenges that, that come up with, with sort of like being in the startup world. Like, you know, there's always problems, right? There's usually money problems or people problems and or com competition problems and just how they're able to deal with it. Um, it's, it's so impressive, right? So for me, I'm just like really, really grateful to sort of like be part of the journey because the reality is that we we try to be helpful but most of the time like your best companies don't really need you right but i think you're helpful at certain points in their in in sort of like the company's life and so if you can do that that that, that to me is like you know is is incredibly rewarding but it's just fun now watching you know founders that I invested in 10 years ago like now run multi-billion dollar companies and it's like oh my god like that's it's crazy, right? Like I was a very, very tiny part of that. I think that's the best part, right? Like just trying to be helpful where possible, but just watching that journey, it's um, it's it really breaks your brain in a good way and lets you kind of understand sort of what is possible in the world. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I do actually agree that the best of your companies needs a list of your time. So in terms of the portfolio management, usually you allocate the list of the time to the best performing companies. Yeah, they don't need you. They know what they're yeah, doing. And and exactly. I think I think you can be helpful still. Yeah, you still can be helpful. Like, you know, there's some of the founders you talk with every once in a while if they need you, right? Or they just want some advice on something or different perspective. And so always, always honored to ask when they ask. <laughs> um, but most of the time, they don't really need you, which is great, which is great. What is the one thing you wish you knew from day one of getting into VC? And what are some of the key lessons you've learned as a venture capital investor? Um, I think just how hard, uh, you know, like how like the, the lifestyle of a VC is not hard per se, but how hard it is to be good and how long it takes to really understand if you're good, right? Like most exits will take anywhere between nine to 12 years. And even if you have a lot of markups in your portfolio, it doesn't really mean anything until you exit them. And so I think the, the thing I wish I learned was just sort of like how long it was it was going to take, right? And and also just how how hard it is to you know how long it's going to take for you to know that you're that you're good at this business or not. And I think for me it wasn't it probably wasn't until like year seven or year eight where like I started to have some like really big exits in the portfolio where it's like, okay, I, you know, it seems like I know what I'm doing, right? Like, you know, you know, I was, I made the right investments or picked the right companies and, um, you know, had, had an eye or radar for this. I think it took me that long, like seven or eight years to go and like really, really confidently say, Hey, I actually might be good at this. Being uh, as a VC investor means picking the right companies and doing a good evaluation of investment opportunities. How do you approach that process? How do you approach evaluating investment opportunities? And what are the key indicators that signal a startup's potential future success to you? So I looked into Diaspora VC's website and it says that yeah. you're looking for a je ne sais quoi, a phrase used to capture an indescribable feature. If it's enable, how do you actually distinguish it? Can you explain? Yeah, that's that's a it's a it's a good it's a good question. I, I think one of the the biggest things is you know a lot of because we're investing at least at diaspora we're investing in in the pre seed stage and so very very early 
And I'm very, very fortunate now to have a fairly large portfolio. And so, you know, I always, you know, this is is much more qualitative than quantitative of of how does this founder actually compare against like my top 10 percentile of founders, right? Like, do they really understand the market? Do they have the grit? Are they just smart in general? Like, just do, you know, like, do, you know, how do they compare against Laura of Shippo? Or how do they compare against like Olivier at Ericol or Michael at ManyChat, right? Like, how, how does this person compare against sort of like some of my top tier founders? And if they do, then that's a good, you know, that's a good bet. Because I think, you know, if as I've learned in 2021, Every time I've kind of not followed that, the the investments almost always never go well. Um, and so, for example, even it's like okay, top twenty five percentile, like well, not 10, 10 not top ten percentile, like not even close to match, but like you know, top twenty five percentile, like ah, let's just go and do that. Um, they just never turn out well. They just never turn out well. So every time I've cut corners there, of of really having that like clear comparison. Um, you know, the other thing I, I try to sort of like understand with the founders of just like, are they willing to stick with this, right? Like, do they have some larger vision of this business? And, and I guess the third part is really like, do they have some unique customer insight that, like, you know, that they you know, I walk out from the call being much smarter. Um, like if I know more about the business than they do, that's usually a bad sign. You know, I should always, you know, founders should always know more than the investor. That isn't always the case, but if, should always know more than investor. And so these are kind of like the three sort of like qualitative things I'm actually looking for. Is there a startup that you at the time passed on the opportunity to invest in, but ended up regretting it? Well, I mean, you know, my anti-portfolio is probably even better than my my actual portfolio. <laughs> I I think I think you just miss a lot of good companies. Um, especially in the early days when you don't really know what you're doing. I I really didn't think like my first you know my first year and a half angel investing I was terrible. I think my first year as a VC pretty awful. You know I think year two and year three was really when I started to like most of the 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 really really good companies started showing up on that time of just like me be hopefully being recognized. I think the reality is that I I can list so many of them. There are a lot of companies I I would miss that I'm just so embarrassed about. And I, I've scraped it out of my brain because I try not to think about it. So again, uh, talking about VC success, VC investment success, um, key to that is having a good deal flow, a good deal flow in terms of the quality of the startups that are applying for funding. How do you approach building a good deal flow for the VC? Um, I mean, I'm, I've am i been pretty lucky. So in, in some ways where I've been in Silicon Valley now for almost 24 years, right? So I've been part of some very good alumni, like the ex-Yahoo alumni is very, very good. But even at 500 startups where we just naturally, at that time, the brand was very, very strong. So we naturally got a lot of deal flow and I enhanced it by, you know, social media, enhanced that by speaking at a lot of conferences and just by doing, you know, being very active, right? Like, like any between like 80 to 100 deals like a year. And so you just naturally like, you know, from founders that 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 go and say, hey, you're good. Hey, I have a, I have a friend who wants to raise, you, you take that meeting, right? Or other VCs, or other angel investors or other investors in general that you build friendships with send you deal flow. And so it's kind of a combination of that. And, and now we just get a lot of deal flow naturally because, you know, my partner Carlos has been in the ecosystem for a long time too. And so, you know, we've also done a lot of investments outside of diaspora, you know, in our previous lives. So many of our founders, you know, in our present diaspora portfolio or in our previous portfolio naturally send us deal flow. Many investors naturally me deal flow so that 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 
that sort of helps a lot. And and having some social media presence as well, too, you just naturally get a lot. Uh, I mean, um, talking about, so kind of looking at 500 global accelerator batch startups or Y Combinator batch, batch startups and trying to source good deals from those batches or kind of having good deals uh, by referrals uh, or, I mean, the startups discovering the VC uh, by their website. Uh, I think it's more on the obvious side. So it's what most of the VCs are doing anyways right now, right? Are there any less obvious channels for sourcing good deals? Hmm. I mean, I mean, the, the reality, you know, for me, I, I won't look at deals from any of the accelerators, whether it's Techstars, 500 or YC. I, I just think, I think they're very obsolete as, as mechanisms for sorting. And I think most good VCs aren't looking at that anymore. I think you have to go and hunt for them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how I get my deal flow is, is basically all referrals in from my portfolio companies, right? Like my founders know what I look for and, and I'm fairly well, you know, fairly well known and sort of like I do a lot of deals for example in developer tools and SaaS um, and I think our niche is also very specific as well too like mm-hmm. European founders who are targeting the US market right in these specific yeah. areas B2B software SaaS enterprise software like that sort of like developer tools um, you know we're, we're you know this very very specific so we naturally get a lot of deal flow from like that you know from from sort of like that partly because I've had a lot of winners as well too in these in these spaces so when you you've built a brand name in in the in these sectors you know new companies in these sectors naturally come and and look for you and so I do think having a personal brand is helpful and um, and so that that's sort of what I rely on the personal brand as well as a lot of um a lot of how should I say sort of like just inbound from referrals of investors that you know and trust as well as other friends that that sort of like we co-invest together so so that's sort of a lot of my deal flow that's been built up over like the last like 10 and a half years of being in the business so you mentioned that most of the acceleration programs now have become obsolete uh, what is the reason for that? Because years ago, you wouldn't say that, right? I mean, the quality of the programs that they used to run was much better than it is nowadays. And nowadays, there are only very few acceleration incubation programs really worth going through for startups. Uh, what are those programs, in your opinion? And what are the key components and nuances good accelerators, incubators need to have in place? And in your opinion, is there any innovation that should be implemented in terms of how acceleration programs are run nowadays? Hmm. Um, I mean, I just think, you know, it's not to, it's not to take anything away from these accelerator programs. Like they were, they play very valuable parts in the ecosystem. I think for where I'm based, so I'm based in San Francisco. I think there's enough of a community of experienced founders now. It's a very big community that there's just this natural osmosis and learning now. I think what what really ended a lot of the programs were really going virtual. You know, by they had to, right? But I think sort of the overexpansion, many of these programs going virtual really took away a lot of that that sort of like sitting beside other super super smart founders and learning from each other. I know there's a movement back towards that, but I think it's too late already. I think the best founders aren't going to these programs anymore. The best founders are building their own sort of like mastermind groups of other super smart founders. I'm seeing more of that. 
Um, and you know, if you, if you take a look at some of the, the heavy hitters now, when I say like really, really strong business people, almost all of them are part of mastermind groups. Most of them did not go through some accelerator now, at, at least that's what I'm seeing here in, in Silicon Valley. There's, there's enough second time, third time founders. There's enough, there's a big enough community now that doesn't really need it versus say, for example, like overseas in many countries where the ecosystems just aren't as mature. That's a very different story. Mm-hmm. So this is very Silicon Valley centric specific. What sectors and geographies are of particular interest to you right now? And do you think there are technologies or geographies that are being underlooked by VCs, but actually have a lot of potential? Um, I'm still very bullish on Web3 slash crypto in general, and that that strength tends to be outside of Silicon Valley. Um, I'm super, super bullish in general on like Europe overall from when it comes sort of like B2B software, enterprise software, developer tools, uh, open source tools. Um, there's just so many really, really good uh, founders coming out. And and I say particularly, it isn't just like Western Europe. I'm talking about like Central Eastern Europe. So, you know, places like Poland or Romania, um, you know, the Baltic region, right? Like Estonia is a no-brainer. But even places like Latvia, um, you know, even Czech Republic, there's just really, really good companies now coming out of these places. They're still raw emerging ecosystems, but you're starting to see some interesting companies and you're starting to see some academy companies coming out. Um, you know, Armenia has always had a strong, strong technical talent out there. And, you're, you know, there there are a bunch of unicorns. We'll see if they're say unicorns, but there's enough sort of like successful companies and founders and sharp folks coming out of there. So I, I'm very bullish on, on sort of like the, like Central Eastern Europe, particularly um, they're still they're still fairly hungry um, about sort of like growing and and you know aggressive and being commercial and so you know that region is very very interesting for for me and I spend I'm out there every month and so I literally put money where my mouth is where like I'm out in the region every single month. Do you have a prediction of what is going to be the next big trend in tech investment? Something that will create a buzz of magnitude similar to that created by generative AI. Not sure. Um, you know, my my guess, which is what it has been for a long time, and what I think will continue is is you know obviously generative AI is interesting, but you know I I think like computational biotech is not something I invest in, but that continues to be a super super interesting space. And I also think particularly in the U.S. because digital health is so broken, I I think that you know it's it's not a space I do a lot a lot of investing in now because it's just it's just such a tough space. But I am seeing a lot of budding interest in this area um, because right people are getting older healthcare is breaking down in the u.s and there are just so many issues here and you know healthcare for example it's like it's almost 20 percent of the u.s gdp so it's huge right like just massive massive problems you know my my gut feeling between computational biotech and and um you know and and sort of like digital healthcare healthcare related stuff health tech I, I suspect that's going to be a very, very large area and, and big trend for investing in the next like five to 10 years. Interesting. Uh, the way operations are run in most venture capital firms in terms of the structure of VCs, deal sourcing, evaluation, portfolio management, et cetera, has not changed in many years, actually. Do you think there's room for innovation there? And can you bring some examples of changes that can be implemented uh, in the way venture capital firms are run? 
I mean, even even like if you look at what we're doing here with Diaspora, like we fully use like the back end and software of of AngelList. And there's other ones like there's Carta. And I'm also seeing sort of like portfolio management sort of like like products. This is out of the Czech Republic. It's called like Vestberry. Like you're starting to see some technologies, right? Like, you know, you know, it's the irony is in VC, we we spend a lot of time investing in technology, but we don't really adapt a lot of it into our operations. Exactly. Whether it's We're filtering. very resistant to innovation yeah. ourselves. Yeah, it's it, it's it's <laughs> It's, it's so it's, it's ironic, but there 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 are interesting companies, right? I think sort of what Card and what AngelList have done in the last just like five years alone that is really changing a lot of the tech stack. And uh, Vesperi is another one that's that you know really really interesting company. Um, I think for us, AR AUM is relatively small, so it's like not probably doesn't make a lot of sense. But my view is like you have like AUM of over hundred million, like using, you know, using like a Vesperi as part of your stack or moving part of your stack to Carta, that probably makes a lot of sense. So like there, there's definitely, you know, there's a start a lot of these tools, right? And I think um, the reason why Carta is into this area now, because they bought a company called Vauban out of London, that was sort of like a competitor to AngelList. There's just sort of like these, this sort of like backend structures and software sort of like, you know, you know, basically changing a lot of the manual processes that VC funds usually are, are relying on. I, I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. I think implementing tools that help with deal sourcing and deal evaluation as well really simplifies the life for venture capital firms and creates a lot of efficiency, but such a small percent of VC firms actually do that. Yeah, I mean, there there are guys who are testing this. So I, you know, I track all these things of, and there's a lot of new AI tools that, you know, like very, very similar. So there's a lot of AI tools in like recruiting and whatnot. You're starting to see like a development of just, there, there are a bunch of, of like new VCs are testing out a lot of these. Like, for example, like um, if you look at like data-driven VC, right? Like he talks about his tech stack. And so fascinating watching that, um, that this new generation of VCs, I, I met a guy named Julian Sands um, of Julian Capital. This guy's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He's doing some really, really interesting things on the deal sourcing and tracking of, of deals that I'm like, wow, like, but he has, a, he has a good technical background and he came from, he came as a technical founder as well too. So like, you know, guys like that, there's a lot of innovations happening here. Julian Capital is like, these guys are sharp. He's a sharp dude. I'll look into them. Marvin, what was the most interesting, insightful piece of information you read recently? Something that made you have that aha moment? Hmm. Mm, that's a good question. <laughs> you, you, you ask a lot of good questions. Um, let's <laughs> see. What was the what was the latest thing? Um, you know, I'm not an Elon Musk fanboy, but I I read a, a article recently on on Time Magazine about you know he was he was behind the start of like OpenAI, right? Like, like now it's just sort of like incredible machine he was involved in the beginning of like deep mind is he was an early investor in um in deep mind so he's been i didn't realize this i knew about his 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 interaction with like open ai and now some of the stuff he's doing now with his own sort of like ai company slash institute but like well elon's been involved in ai for like a very very long time right like this is deep mind when they were first starting he was an angel investor there so i was like wow he's um like he he really understands his space. I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't understand how long he's been in that space, um, which is interesting, right? Which yeah. also makes me think about like, wow, why did he buy Twitter, right? Like maybe for the microphone, but also maybe for the data source. Like maybe he's just much further ahead of, of on all this stuff than than we all understand. Yeah, very possible. 
Very possible. I, I mean, yeah. pr- mo- probably true. Um, I mean, that I just read that last night. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> that 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 definitely made me think. Yeah. Marvin, so entrepreneurship is a very contagious thing. Working with so many aspiring entrepreneurs, have you ever thought of becoming an entrepreneur yourself? Have you ever thought about starting a startup? Um, well, I would say, you know, this diaspora is kind of like a startup, right? Like, it, you know, it's not exactly like a product-driven startup. But our, it's our, a our product is money, but, you know, it's... But it's a venture. Um, yeah. I, you know, going and joining and running that gaming holding company for two years was sort of like my, you know, like it, there were some established. sort of like there are eighteen companies there, but the goal is, you know, working with my two friends to sort of like help them, you know, sort of like with the structure, help them with the strategy, and and really sort of like doing everything right from the day to day, sort of like like just you know, when things went wrong, for example, with the, the Apple sort of like release, like just going in and trying to be helpful there, signing deals with sort of potential partners, like the day-to-day as well as talking through strategy, like that was sort of like, I guess my grasp of going back into operations. So so that was something that sort of, I think I did sort of do as a, as a sort of like co-founder with them. But the reality is just sort of like going and doing it from like really beginning. I think you had to find something that you really, really, an idea and a problem that you really, really want to go after and start from scratch. I, I don't know if I found anything like that yet. In conclusion, what piece of wisdom would you like to share with aspiring investors? Um, I think like you'll know, you know, I think the the advice I give for aspiring investors is like really make sure that you're doing it for the right reason. I think that you will lose money. Right. And just understand that's part of the game. And so you have to treat it like tuition, kind of like what I did when I first started doing angel investing. And just also understand that you probably will not know if you're good. Like if you want to get good at this, this is a this is like a long term greedy game. So it's going to take you at least like seven or eight years and just also building up enough of a portfolio. Don't think just doing 10 deals will be enough. You need to do, you know, the, the science and in, in the math says like somewhere between 25 to 35 investments to build a portfolio. Uh um, to sort of like just to, you know, because there's going to be a lot of losses, make sure that you do at least like 25 to 35 investments over a certain period of time and know that most of them are probably going to not do well. And probably most of these companies are probably going to die and you'll get zero back. But if you know, what really matters is that this is an outlier business. So you only need one or two to do very, very well. And that would be my advice is be long-term greedy and understand that there's a, there's a very high learning curve, but it's the best game in town. Wow, so much information packed in 25 minutes. Thank you so much for an interesting conversation. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Marvin. Oh, thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. Hopefully when I hit like maybe 500 investments or something. Definitely would love to have you back. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, that'll be a day. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.